This is a tale of three neighborhoods and two schools. First, overlooking the East River and the Brooklyn Bridge, there's Brooklyn Heights, a predominantly white, old-money enclave of stately brownstones. Brooklyn Heights is home to PS8. Just east of Brooklyn Heights, but a world apart, there are the Farragut Houses, a complex of 10 brick public housing towers populated mostly by low-income black and brown folks. Across the street from Farragut is PS307. In between Brooklyn Heights and Farragut, almost like a hinge, is a neighborhood called Dumbo. For decades, Dumbo was mostly industrial, but the warehouses were turned into lofts, glass high-rises started sprouting up like weeds, and Dumbo now has the most expensive housing in Brooklyn. Dumbo used to fall within the school zone for PS8 in Brooklyn Heights. So as Dumbo filled up with upper-middle-class families, PS8 became wildly popular and severely overcrowded. By 2014, the school was enrolled at 142% of its capacity. Meanwhile, PS307, like so many schools across Black Brooklyn, had plenty of space. So in the summer of 2015, the Department of Education announced a plan to redraw the school zones, moving Dumbo out of the zone for PS8 and into the zone for PS307. If you were a parent in Dumbo with a child too young for school, you may well have bought a home in that neighborhood because you believed you'd be entitled to a seat at PS8. This rezoning would have taken that away from you. So when the city held a public hearing, Dumbo parents came out in force to protest, to make it known that they were not happy to be rezoned into a school that primarily serves the projects. They called our school dangerous. They talked about fires and things that they said happened at the school that never happened at the school. Of course, they talked about test scores. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a parent at PS307. She also happens to write about race in schools for the New York Times. They talked about um, lack of resources. Even though our school is a magnet and gets a million dollars in additional funding every year, even though our school had a Mandarin program and theirs didn't, even though our school offers art and music and their school doesn't, they said we were deprived and that their kids would then be deprived. But the main thing that kept coming up was concerns about safety, which of course is always a dog whistle. It's an elementary school. It is not unsafe. I clearly would not have my daughter in a school that I felt was unsafe. And they talked a lot about their community and wanting their kids to go to school with children from their community, which clearly was a very small community of people who were just like them. And so after all of that, um, I was very emotional because I felt, you're you're talking about my kid, you're talking about kids just like my kid, you're talking about children. Like, these are kindergarten parents who are afraid of other kindergarten children being around their kid. Never walked in the school, never visited it, never talked to the parents who, what parent do you know doesn't want their child in a safe school? And that somehow our parents didn't want those things and that somehow our children in our school weren't good enough to be in a classroom with them. And these are all very good liberal people who proud public school supporters and live in Brooklyn because they think Brooklyn's like so cool and diverse but have created this complete bubble of whiteness and wealth that they were going to protect and didn't seem to care that there were parents in the audience whose children they were insulting. I imagine the DOE was not surprised by this resistance from the privileged, mostly white parents who wanted to go to PS8. But they were caught flat-footed when the mostly low-income black parents of PS307 raised holy hell as well. Because it's 307 parents are black and Latino parents who live in a federal housing project. and. Everyone's used to just running them over and doing what they want with little resistance. This rezoning plan was not designed to integrate 307. It was designed to relieve the overcrowding at PS8. 
but integration was a possible side effect if those parents from Dumbo were to actually enroll in their new zone school. So after decades of doing basically nothing on school integration, maybe the DOE expected the 307 community to be, I don't know, grateful? But to a lot of 307 families, this felt like just one more example of the city bulldozing through their lives. And they raised enough of a ruckus about this that the DOE was forced to postpone a final vote on the rezoning for months. In the meantime, this rezoning mess attracted a ton of press and laid bare just how much anger and fear was bubbling under the surface of this community. A vote on the rezoning by the District 13 Community Education Council was finally held in January 2016. I was there. The first voice you'll hear is Faraji Hannah-Jones, Nicole's husband, who was co-president of the PTA at PS307. All that we will get if this plan go through is another PSA. A school that the lower income black and brown folks built only to lose all the stake in ownership. I am tired of better things being brought into the community and the community members being denied those better things. Gentrification, it's here. It's not going back to the old Brooklyn that we remember. Those times have passed. And what happens is people, I think, are unnecessarily polarizing each other and looking at each other only as a demographic. And I think that that's harmful. We feel disrespected and looked over. There are people here who have been here who will fight. We are not against diversity. It should happen. Does it need to happen right now? I'm going to say no. Voting yes to this rezone doesn't mean that we are blind to the fact that we have very big work to do. Voting yes means that we refuse to live as victims of the past. But I want to remind you all that we are not fools. Ultimately, local politicians all condemned the process, but supported the result. And the rezoning was approved. Watching all this unfold, I felt like what was happening in Dumbo was like a postcard from the future. I thought... Is this what's coming to Bed-Stuy? This is School Colors, a podcast from Brooklyn Deep about how race, class, and power shape American cities and schools. The fight over PS8 and PS307 wasn't really about school zones. It was about generations of racist policy and planning coming home to roost. It was about who the city serves, who our country values, and who gets to control what tomorrow looks like for them. These are vitally important questions that touch all of our lives. We should be talking about them all the time. But instead, it takes a crisis like this rezoning to open the floodgates. Everybody shows up for their two minutes at the microphone and goes home feeling bruised, and nothing fundamentally changes. Is that the best we can do? We spent a lot of time on the past. In this episode, we'll look to the future. Despite our aggressively progressive self-image, New York's dirty secret is that we have one of the most deeply segregated school systems in the country. So now, with gentrification forcing the issue, it seems like school integration is back on the table for the first time in decades. What do we have to do to not totally screw it up? And what does this mean for the long struggle for black self-determination here in central Brooklyn? There's a fire, there's a history in Bed-Stuy that is black. And I don't think we should lose that. I think that every time minorities have something good, it gets taken away from us, and I'd like to be able to hold on to something. I think that the boogeyman has been wrongly assigned. It feels like you're in a twilight zone. Things are on the move in District 16. These schools are doing something great. What's happening by default is that 
the district is going to disappear. So your fundamental question is like, how do you change racial dynamics in this country? Because that is what, what it is. This is Mark Winston Griffin. And Max Friedman. Welcome back to School Colors. In the last episode of School Colors, we told the story of the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee, an organization started by parents who were mostly new to the neighborhood, mostly but not exclusively white, and basically all middle class. They started out wanting to find a place for their own children in District 16, but along the way, they ruffled some feathers. First, with the name of the organization. You're not born and raised here. You're not do or die. You just got here. Then, by aiming their activities at the parents of children who were not yet in school. So they want to make sure the schools are right before their kids get there? No, we want to make sure the schools are right because the students are there already. Then, by choosing two focus schools that they would support by fundraising and encouraging enrollment. The message came back fast and furious that this was a white group that was here for a takeover. When Mika Vanterpool and Virginia Poundstone took over as co-presidents of the group in late 2017, they knew that if they were going to continue organizing, they had to fight back against this narrative, zoom out from the focus schools, and prove that the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee could live up to its name. We had a meeting. Holy smokes, like everybody's white. Oh, we have to go back, <laughs> you know, go find a friend, bring a friend. And so we were constantly measuring. We wanted the organization to reflect the existing community, both racially as well as economically as well. Well, we were looking forward to the day that it felt more like Bed-Stuy. After going underground for a few months to regroup, they reemerged in the spring with an event that was well attended. And that was the first meeting that we said, look, like we're at least at 50-50 or more. We were probably more families of color than white families, and that felt really good to us. So we were riding high off of that. I think that first generation of the tours and enrolling was really a much more proselytizing and like come join me and the second round was much more like go see where you fit in go see where you feel welcome go see what works for you they also took steps to start serving parents already enrolled in schools they were going to do workshops for parents to know their rights how to cut through the doe bureaucracy how to run a functional school leadership team This is exactly what BMC had tried to do a few years earlier. And they kept on hoping that they could work with local stakeholders, especially the Community Education Council, or CEC. An alliance between us would have just really, really been, like, amazing. Because we are far more flexible than the CEC can be. And if we were able to really collaborate, which occasionally there were moments, and then it would just disappear because of who knows. But if, if we had really been able to work together... Our organization wouldn't be closing right now and a lot of work would be going on, but it just wasn't us. Ultimately, the reason that we realized like this is a dead end, we've hit a dead end, is that after two years of trying to build, Mika and I really by putting more energy and building with the community than building the organization and realizing we weren't getting fucking anywhere and there was nowhere else to go. So all of our energy was spent on trying to be good community members and get along with the stakeholders that didn't want us there. And then just when we felt like, okay, maybe there's some light at the end of the other tunnel, some rumor would resurface about asking for an all-white classroom from three years ago. We're like, dude, like we, it feels like you're in the twilight zone, just circling back around year after year. It's like, I can't, like... This is the rumor that just won't die, 
that some parent affiliated with the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee asked some administrator in the district for an all-white pre-K or kindergarten class. Mika and Virginia still don't know if it's true. Even if it's true, as a leader, your job is not to stoke more fear. Your job is to find paths towards healing. But instead of trying to find paths toward healing, the method has been stoke more fear, create more division, keep parents from organizing. Why? I'm, I'm curious. Because like, we're talking about the DOE. <laughs> well, no, but, but go further because, like, what would be the reason for stoking that kind of division? I'm power. Remaining power, like not giving power to the people, like keeping it so that it's easier to manage. People are easier to control and manage if they're not organized. And you feel like the the fact that Bedside Parents Committee was organized. It created a threat. It created a threat to the principals. It created a threat to existing families in the schools. It created a threat to leadership on all different levels. If you're involved in civic life in any neighborhood, you've probably run up against what Mika and Virginia did, a network of individuals and organizations who act as gatekeepers. It feels like there was always this pervasive sense of, this is our space. And if you weren't with them, then you were against them. You know, this is my space. My parents were here. My grandparents were here. My great-grandparents were here. I feel as much ownership to Bed-Stuy as anyone else should feel, but I was not and I did not operate as a part of that group or that clique. And so I was certainly on the outside. We weren't invited into the clique because we weren't trusted, and I understand why we weren't trusted. I absolutely understand why people wouldn't want to hang out with us and why we would be distrusted. No doubt. This was like a place where white people didn't go, and so like it was like a it was a black space that is feeling no longer black, and that is a huge loss. That like that is like an extremely painful loss, and then here we are sort of representing that. So I understand why there wouldn't be trust. And then we're already at a, who are you and what the fuck are you doing? And then we come out and we're like, we are here to fix some schools. And then it's like, what are you talking about? And then we're like, oh God, sorry. Oh, big mistake. As much as they understand, they also don't think it's entirely fair that people's frustrations about everything else going on in the neighborhood were taken out on the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee. I think that the boogeyman has been wrongly assigned, and I think that the focus should be on the actual boogeyman instead of small little individual boogie people. And who's the actual boogeyman? The actual boogeyman are the systems that the culture's created. And so attacking small things is not going to help the cause if we're not attacking the larger system that was placed the you know to uphold white supremacy and all of those people working for that system. And that's part of I think what my idea of Bedside Parents Committee could do is collectively fight that system. But what ended up happening was we couldn't get above the individual boogeyman-ness. <laughs> and so we were never actually able to effectively change the system because the system made sure that we were not able to get there organizationally. I always say the system fights to maintain itself. When we spoke to Mika and Virginia a few months ago, they still hadn't actually announced that the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee would be shutting down. And they weren't planning to. I just don't 
want to be another news gossipy news story. Sure. Like let's just disappear <laughs> slowly, and then we're then people are done talking, and they're like they've moved on, and you know hopefully they've moved on to like great stuff. The Bedsty Parents Committee now exists only as a Facebook page. Their website, bedstyparents.org, has expired. Yeah, that's hard to hear. I give them a lot of credit for sincerely trying to learn from and correct their missteps. And the need for building parent power in District 16 is real. But I can say from personal experience, when you have white supremacy coming at you, even from good people with the best of intentions who have something constructive to offer, that, that's not an easy position to be in. You can acknowledge those intentions and shut it down, or you can be more forgiving, give the benefit of the doubt and extract what is good. Either way, having to make that call time and time again, well, it, it wears you down. On one level, the fall of the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee seems like the black community flexing its muscle. From another angle, it feels like an acknowledgement of how powerless we actually are. I mean, it's not like the forces responsible for school under-enrollment or gentrification were beaten back. In the end, it's often hard to distinguish between defending your community and protecting your turf, between actively pursuing change and low-key resisting it. And I know this all too well from my 35 years of organizing in Brooklyn. The social activism of the 60s and 70s in black New York gave way to a nonprofit civil society that emphasizes direct social services like housing, small business development, and elder care. While Central Brooklyn has its share of block associations and civic groups, few of them actually challenge state or corporate power. Most direct confrontation happens in times of perceived crisis, like incidents of police brutality, or when a senior is being stripped of their home. The truth is, a generation of black activists in Central Brooklyn including some of the heroes of Ocean Hill-Brownsville, like legendary firebrand Al Van. My name is Albert Van. I call myself a black man uh, in America. They did what social and political strivers are supposed to do. They went from challenging the establishment to becoming part of the establishment. Once they got on the inside, they stayed not for years, but for decades. And it wasn't in their best interest to cultivate a culture of direct democracy that might turn around and challenge them. It's a trajectory that's as old as the exercise of politics itself. When I asked Al Van about his legacy, what he was proudest of having achieved, here's what he said. My entire tenure in the Assembly and the City Council, it was to make sure that uh, policies reflected uh, our needs throughout. Things that will never be known because when you're negotiating and fighting within your party to get something in a particular bill that becomes a law, it's not something that the public ever gets to know about because those are internal fights and struggles. You know, you don't say, hey, you know, you wouldn't have had that if I hadn't done, if I hadn't argued, if I hadn't cornered somebody, if I hadn't, you know, raised hell. You know, those things will never be known. At this point, I should disclose something. In 2009, after many years of activism in running organizations, I ran for office myself. In fact, I ran for the seat on the New York City Council that Van was set to retire from because of term limits. But then term limits for the city council were essentially overturned by Mayor Bloomberg, who was looking to grab an extra term as mayor for himself. So I was already in the race when Van announced he wasn't going anywhere, which is how we ended up going head to head. In the end, I lost the election. Maybe that means you will question my motives and credibility when I talk about Bed-Stuy's political order. But look, I've worked for and with many of these establishment figures over the years. They've been on the front lines of this neighborhood's survival. 
And I know how much they love this community. I know how they've taken body blows for us. What I'm talking about goes beyond Central Brooklyn or even black people. For any disenfranchised community to move forward, there needs to be a cycle. You agitate, you get on the inside, and then a new crop of people come along to agitate, mobilize, and generate a newer, more evolved status quo. And it keeps going on and on and on. In Bed-Stuy, it feels like that cycle has been on pause for 30 years. Of course, there have been many dynamic black people brought into the inner circles of political and civic influence in Bed-Stuy. But there's been very little going on outside of electoral politics to hold local leadership accountable. Which is why after narrowly losing my city council bid, I co-founded the Brooklyn Movement Center as a way of renewing Central Brooklyn's tradition of popular organizing. BMC's first big project was actually that study of District 16, which I've talked about before. The whole point of the study was to make a case for District 16, to get foundations and other stakeholders to invest in the district and to invest in parent organizing. But even when we scrupulously kissed the rings and approached people in a completely deferential way, what we thought was constructive criticism was still seen as a threat. So when the report was done, we got crickets. Crickets from funders, crickets from the DOE, downright hostility from the district, and even crickets from local leaders in Bed-Stuy, who were never quite forgiven me for running against one of their own and assumed I was just using BMC as a platform to run again. Look, I'm obviously biased, but I still think that this is one case in which defending their territory edged into defending the status quo. So Mika and Virginia weren't imagining things. There really is a click. It's hard to do much of anything in this neighborhood unless you have spoken to the right handful of people. You go to three or four meetings at different places about different issues, and there's a good chance you'll see the same folks presiding over those meetings. I guess if you're on the inside, this is what black self-determination looks like. But where does that leave everyone else? Boys and Girls High School, the pride and joy of Bed-Stuy, is the oldest public high school in Brooklyn and arguably the most important physical icon of black education here. At its height, there were 4,000 students at Boys and Girls. Now there are 400-something. For some years, Boys and Girls had been on a state list of persistently struggling schools, to the point where it might even have been closed. So members of the political establishment here created an advisory committee to fight for the school to stay open, and eventually, finally, the school came off of that state list. So they threw a party in the gym to celebrate. It was called the Return of Academic Excellence to Boys and Girls. Everything was decked out in the school's colors, red and black. We snacked on cocktail shrimp and chicken wings and smoked salmon and sliders. Behind a temporary dais, there were preachers and executive directors, politicians and judges, some people we've met on this podcast, Annette Robinson, Dr. Lester Young. And at the podium stood Al Van. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of the MC, really the facilitator. I just want to move us along. He's 84 years old, shaved head with a gray goatee and an earring, and a black suit with a pink shirt and a bright red tie. He's retired now, but still a resident dignitary here after having served 38 years in office. Uh, we are blessed to have a very, very talented uh, young people who are going to perform for us at this time. Please stand for the Negro National Anthem by the No Pointer Youth Orchestra. For nearly three hours, they gave speeches recognizing each other, the school, and its principal. There were a handful of students there at the beginning, some of whom got certificates, but they got out of there pretty quickly. When the youth orchestra started playing Lift Every Voice and Sing, I couldn't help but think back to 1969, 
when Al Van was elevated to acting principal at Junior High School 271 in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. For two or three weeks, American flags were replaced with the red, black, and green Black Liberation flag. Cleaster Cotton remembered it well. In the morning, and, and we used to just have the Pledge of Allegiance, and nobody would just be into it. No, what happened was they did the Pledge of Allegiance, but then they did lift every voice and sing. And you could hear the whole school singing that. The sound of that song went through the whole school every morning. I get, I get goosebumps thinking about it. That was 50 years ago. The world has changed. And it's impossible not to detect a faded glory amid the ceremony. As we've highlighted throughout this podcast, the forces that have shaped District 16 are vast and complicated. There's so many institutions and policymakers that have to answer for the condition we're in. But at some point, we as a community, we have to own our own shit. One of the things that frustrates me about this district, the more I go around it, there is a lot of high-power education leaders that live in this district. Naquan McLean, president of the Community Education Council for District 16. And I don't understand how they allow this district to go to hell in a handbasket. Like, it's a lot of, like, union-heavy people, like, people that have power that live here. I just don't understand. The hard truth is, the empowerment of the political establishment hasn't always translated into high-achieving schools. And the black central Brooklyn they consider themselves the guardians of, it's disappearing. After the break. Hi, it's Antony and Pierre from BMC. As you know, this is our last episode of School Colors. We're going to miss telling this story as much as y'all are going to miss listening. But this doesn't have to be the end of our relationship. We've heard from a lot of people who want to figure out how to use School Colors as a teaching and organizing tool. If that's you, we want to hear from you. Hit us up at contact at brooklyndeep.org. Now, in the meantime, we've got one more opportunity for you to meet us in person. Join Mark and Max at the Brooklyn Public Library on December 17th for a panel moderated by Chalkbeat and featuring a special guest whose voice you may recognize, Naquan McLean. That's Tuesday night, December 17th. Refreshments at 6 p.m., discussion at 6.30 at the Grand Army Plaza branch of the Brooklyn Public Library. Bye! (laughs) If you just paint a picture of, like, what, what the ideal... District 16 looks like in diversity terms? I don't know. When it was first suggested to Naquan McLean that the district should have a diversity task force, he was skeptical. So what ended up happening is one of the members of the Best Out Parent Committee went to some forum that she went to, and she sent me an email. I probably still have the email saying, oh, you know, I went to this forum. We need to do this. We need to have a diversity task force. I said at that point, and I think we even sent an email to them, like, we don't see a need for diversity like we are diverse what are we going to bust poor kids to poor schools like what like what 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 are we going to do like what what, you have to see i got to find that email i remember that email because i was hot and i was saying what do they mean what are we gonna we got three percent white kids in our schools what are we going to split the three percent up we're not busting our kids out them white folks ain't busting their kids here so what 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 is gonna what we're gonna do So when I say anything about integration on Facebook or something, people are like, you talking about busing people? I'm like, no. Matt Gonzalez was the school diversity project director for New York Appleseed. 
and in 2016, he was invited to District 16 by the superintendent at the time to facilitate the creation of a diversity task force. But he understood that there might not be much of an appetite for this in Bed-Stuy. There can be resistance to school integration in black and brown communities, and for good reason. The way that integration, desegregation has been framed has been very white-centered. So that has, you know, in effect, decentered the, the interest and the necessities and the priorities of people and communities of color so that folks are all just like, well, we just need to import white students into this black school and the white kind of savior complex will manifest naturally. And I think that, that's been part of the problem and why, we have a, why I'm pushing back on this kind of narrative that I think is racist and classist. The other piece is that if we look at the history of desegregation <laughs> kind of across the country, it was done on the backs of black students. It was done at the expense of black educators in the South. Most black folks have never just been dying to like <laughs> be in majority white settings. What they want is the education that white kids get. Nicole Hannah-Jones. The problem is never for a single day in this country have we provided all black schools the education that white kids get. So when I'm arguing for integration, it's a very practical matter that white folks will never allow for their children the schools that we allow for black children. And the only way for us to get that is to be in the same buildings as them. There are so many different ways that the disparity between majority white schools and majority black schools manifest. In New York City, one of the most glaring is PTA fundraising. Last year, the median white kid attended a school that raised $65 per student. The median black kid attended a school that raised just $4 per student. Remember PS8 in Brooklyn Heights? They raised $1.5 million last year. Many schools raised less than 1000 But this isn't only about money. It's about power and opportunity. To keep using PS8 as an example, they are far from the only overcrowded school in the city. Overcrowding is most common in schools that serve primarily Latinx immigrant students. But the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And it was the families at PS8 who had the influence to get the city to build them an annex. And when that didn't do the trick, to rezone. The DOE caters to wealthy and white parents in much the same way that the city caters to wealthy and white people in general. And for much the same reason. At every level, our policymaking is dictated by the fear that these people will leave and take their money with them. Nicole explained that there are high-poverty, mostly black and brown schools, like her daughters, that serve kids well, despite all their challenges. But the difference is, who in that school writes the recommendation to Harvard? Who in the school says, oh, you're interested in journalism, I can get you an internship at the New York Times because I work there? But the catch-22 of integration is this. Obviously, segregation reinforces white supremacy by separating children of color from resources and power. But integration can reinforce white supremacy, too by telling children of color that they have to be in proximity to whiteness to get resources and power. Integration does not mean simply recreating the power dynamics that exist outside of the school within the school. That simply getting white kids in a building with black kids is not bringing equality and integration, and that's not what we're looking for. I think this is why I'm saying it has to be carefully managed, it has to be well thought out, it has to be done in a way that ensures that when you have parents who are coming in, I mean, the, the income disparity between Dumbo and the Farragut houses, I think it was um, that they made more than 10 times the income of parents uh, in Farragut. So to just bring them in and think that that is somehow going to be a great environment for those students, if we haven't been very thoughtful about how that happens, I think is naive. New York City seems to now be taking school integration seriously for the first time in generations. And thankfully, 
The discourse has come a long way in the last few years to reflect the true complexity of the issue. A lot of credit for this actually goes to a group of high school students with an organization called Integrate NYC, who developed what they call the five R's of real integration. Race and enrollment. Every public school should reflect the diversity of the city. Resources. Every public school should be equitably funded. Relationships. Every public school should invest in curriculum, pedagogy, and school culture that honor the identities and backgrounds of all students and families. Restorative justice. Every public school should address the disproportionate and punitive discipline used against students of color in segregated and integrated spaces. Representation. Every public school should hire faculty and staff that reflect the identities of their students. The idea is that effective integration requires all of these, working in conjunction. Bowing to public pressure, the city created a school diversity advisory group that began to meet at the beginning of 2018. One of the members of the school diversity advisory group was Naquan McLean. And when the advisory group presented their first set of recommendations a year later, they explicitly used the five R's as a foundation. In June, the city announced that five districts would each get a $200,000 grant to craft their own diversity plan. One of them is District 16. The process is meant to be hyperlocal, which means that they'll have to start by defining what diversity means for District 16. What does a fully integrated school look like? What do we consider integration? We have schools that are diverse. We have students that are from different parts of Africa. We have students that are from different parts of the Caribbean. Why aren't we looking at those and making sure that we're pouring resources into that to make sure that they can see themselves in pedagogy? They can see themselves in the classroom. So that is what we will be focusing on. So of the five R's, race and enrollment, the butts and seats approach that most of us probably think of when we think of integration, is not going to be Naquan's top priority as this process of diversity planning goes forward. We need to focus on our students in temporary housing. We need to focus on our students that are English language learners. We need to focus on our students with IEPs. IEP stands for Individualized Education Program the official document for each student with special needs. Do they have quality IEPs? Should they have IEPs? Why do we have so many students with IEPs? Like, those are the things that we need to focus on. Naquan wants to make sure that these students are having their needs met and that they're not being concentrated in just a couple of schools. As our community continues to gentrify quickly, I want to be very clear that, you know, we make sure that people don't think that we're trying to fix schools for white folks. We want to make people understand that we want to fix schools because it's the right thing to do. You know, we are going to look at conflict resolutions. We are, you know, we are going to bring in experts to talk about how, you know, what does a gentrified school look like? But that is not going to be our focus. Our focus is not, we're not going to spend $150,000 to figure that out. We're gonna do what's best for all students. New students are welcome, but it won't be focused around the new students. It will be focused around the families that stayed and to make sure that we have stable schools. Naquan can also use the process to do what they've been wanting to do for years. Undertake a serious study of where families who leave the district are going and why, and how District 16 can get them back. But one carrot that is frequently used to attract middle-class families that Naquan is not interested in is gifted and talented. In fact, even though several years ago he fought for a new G&T program in District 16, he now stands behind the recommendation of the School Diversity Advisory Group that gifted and talented programs are biased, divisive, and ineffective, and they should be phased out in favor of universal school-wide enrichment. Naquan has very publicly stuck his neck out on this one, which has brought him into conflict with some of our local black elected officials 
who continued to champion GNT in the name of black families having equal access to supposedly advanced educational options. As District 16 considers how to plan for integration and diversity, one school they might look to is Brighter Choice Community School. If there's one individual who represents the lineage of black education in Central Brooklyn, it's the founding principal of Brighter Choice, Fabio McIntosh. To understand why, let's rewind a few episodes and decades. The public face of community control in Ocean Hill-Brownsville, alongside Al Van, was a social studies teacher named Leslie Campbell, later G2 Wayusi. Well, I, I felt I was part of the freedom struggle of black people. I was part of the ongoing struggle of the black community to uh, obtain self-determination, to obtain dignity, and to obtain liberation. After the strike was over, G2 started his own school, Uhuru Sasa Shule, or Freedom Now School, part of a pan-African cultural center called the East. One of the first teachers at Uhuru Sasa was Fela Barclift. It was about the black experience, it was about revolution, and we were to create our own way of delivering that message to the young people that we served. And Fela Barclift went on to start a school of her own, Little Sun People. And one of the first students at Little Sun People, when it was still operating out of Mama Fela's house, was Fabio McIntosh. I grew up on Green Avenue between Bedford and Franklin, which in the early 80s was not the place to be, but in my mind, I loved everything about my experiences growing up. Fabio went to Little Sun People and then to another Afrocentric school in the neighborhood, Shuleya Mapinduzi. We would like, let's say we were gardening and we were walking around the block. While we're walking around the block, we have to shout and sing these songs. And like, it's embarrassing as a child. You're like, we are marching outside and we're singing songs. But in retrospect, like, how amazing is that? What was the song? Um, we have done black things today and we're gonna do black things together tomorrow. How, how does it go? I cannot sing, but what I will say it's like <laughs> we have done do you know this song, Mark? We have done black things today and we're gonna do some black things together tomorrow. And then the chorus would be like, Will you yes I will? Will you yes I will? And it went on to some other words. These schools were strong not just on culture, but on academics too. Coming out of Little Some People and Mapinduzi and Yuhura Sasa, most of us came out way above grade level. When she entered the public school system, she went to PS243, the Weeksville School, which is located at the same intersection where Colored School Number 2 had been more than 100 years earlier, when Weeksville was still a thriving independent black community. In fact, Fabio was named the Weeksville Girl for 1988 always had great teachers. I always had people that encouraged me. I was really fortunate where I always had teachers that partnered with my mother. Like, I feel that the system did right by me. And so I wanted to transfer and give that back. She became a teacher, starting her career in District 16. Fast forward a few years, when she was invited by the DOE to open a new school in the district, she jumped at the chance. When Brighter Choice got the green light, they were given a building that was home to a school that was being phased out. I went up to visit one day. No one knew who I was. I was just trying to eyeball some stuff. And it was like craziness. Like, I mean craziness. Parents arguing with teachers. Like, it was just chaos. And so I knew that I wanted to bring in another way. 
I wanted to show people what's possible. I wanted to show, especially, you know, people of color that it doesn't have to be chaotic. We don't have to yell at children to, you know, help them listen. She wanted to create a loving, joyous, and rigorous learning environment. I greeted, you know, families at the door, which is very simple. You think like, hey, somebody should greet the kids before they walk in. But at that time, that was like unheard of. Parents were fascinated with the fact that I knew students' names. How do I see you every day and not know your name? Still, the early years were tough. I had to knock on doors to get kids to come into the building. I literally walked, scavenged the neighborhood, the projects and everything, knocking on doors. The police were like, miss, you're crazy. You're not, like, don't do this. But at that time, I needed students. I went from doing that to starting tours where it'd be like 30 parents on a tour. I was just like, what is going on? Brighter Choice to Me felt like the perfect mix of progressive and rigor, the perfect mix of free spirit and structure. Shayna Cooper Silas was a board member of the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee, a black woman originally from South Florida who was part of the first cohort of families from the group to enroll her child at Brighter Choice. I came in the building and I was blown away. I immediately, probably within 20 minutes in the building, knew that this was going to be where I was going to send the girls. If other schools in the district had a reputation for being unfriendly to more middle-class, empowered parents, that was not Fabio's attitude at all. I was never intimidated by New Brooklyn, as I will call it. I was never intimidated by a savvy parent. I liked it. In the last episode, we talked about how things kind of spiraled out of control at the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee's other focus school, PS309. On paper, Brighter Choice was even more ripe for conflict. The same year that Shayna and her cohort arrived, Brighter Choice was merged with another small school in the building. So you had legacy parents from that school, legacy Brighter Choice parents, and new Brighter Choice parents. It's not that there was no drama at all. Shayna ran for PTA president her very first year in the school, which she admits was a, a bold move. But Fabio would step in to mediate, stopping small arguments from turning into big fights. So I consider the Brighter Choice pioneer families as the families who were down before a buzz or a name came attached to Brighter Choice. Those are my families sometimes that didn't know they had choice. Some of them, you know, lived across the street in the NYCHA housing. Some of them are transient families from the local shelters. And it's how do I bridge that world, the pioneer, with my new people that are coming in? As the leader of a school, you sit with many organizations and you find how you both can work together. But it's not me conceding my power as the school leader to you because you're new in the community and you think you have the answers. I think I have the answers too. If there's one thing basically everyone we've talked to agrees on, it's that the most important ingredient to a school's success, academic or otherwise, is leadership. That's why, under Mayor Bloomberg, the system did everything they could to empower principals, for better or worse. That's why CEC President Naquan McLean has been so frustrated at his inability to do much about what he calls principles of concern in the district. That's why, when Superintendent Rahisha Aman stepped down earlier this year, Naquan intervened in the process of hiring her replacement. They want to put someone here that we did not agree with. We just think it won't be right for the district. If this would have been 16 a couple of years ago, at the dinner last week, when they wanted to make the announcement, the announcement would have been made. Leadership also might have something to do with the success of PS21. You might remember PS21 from our very first episode, 
It's the school that was led by Adelaide Sanford for 20 years. I knew the power uh, that a liberating education could provide for people who had been oppressed and depressed and, and isolated. Since Dr. Sanford, PS21 has had an unbroken chain of leadership. Each new principal has been trained by the one before. This is extremely rare. And that continuity might help to explain why, even though enrollment at PS21 has declined along with the rest of District 16, it still has the most students of any school in the district, by a lot. Contrast that with what happened at Brighter Choice last year when Fabio McIntosh stepped down to take a job at the DOE. A number of parents left the school, either because they were so discouraged that Fabio was gone or felt so disrespected by the way the DOE went about the process of hiring her replacement. But that's not a knock on the new principal himself. He's a white man. But one black parent leader told me that if you have to have a white man leading the school, he's the one. The school has an equity committee, and they're taking concrete steps to build bridges between families while centering the needs of the most vulnerable students. Brighter Choice once called itself Bed-Stuy's best-kept secret, but it's not such a secret anymore. And that brings us to the central dilemma of gentrification. Can we have nice things? Is it possible to improve the neighborhood and make it more desirable without accelerating displacement? For example, if Brighter Choice becomes like PS8 or PS11, one of these hot schools that middle-class families are climbing over each other like crabs in a barrel to get into, the school may be integrated, at least numerically, for a few years. But over time, the legacy families may lose access, whether that's because the school is overcrowded or because they simply can't afford to live there anymore. I suggested this possibility to Fabio, the founding principal. So maybe this, see, this question seems like a long way off, but on the enrollment, I mean, Brighter Choice is one of the only schools in the district where enrollment is going up. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, you, if there's any concern there that with enrollment going up, with the, the reputation of Brighter Choice, in particular among people who are coming in from you know, the new Bed-Stuy, mm-hmm. that that is going to send up property values in the zone, which is going to make some of these problems. Never even thought of that. <laughs> I don't think it's totally fair to put that all on her. No, of course not. But somebody should be thinking about it, planning for it. That can be a side effect of having a school in a neighborhood that people want, that's in high demand, that can make everything else around it prosper. So um, I guess we'll have to wait and see (laughs) how that one plays out. I remember when I was writing a piece about my daughter and my editor was like, well, you seem to be saying conflicting things like Nicole Hannah-Jones, you want them to come in the school, but then you're afraid of them coming into the school and you want them to come into the school, but then you don't want too many of them to come into the school. And I'm like, yes, it's all of those things because you need integration to happen in a thoughtful way. It needs to be planned. It needs to be prepared for. It needs to be in a way where you don't have a dominant population taking over. So how do you integrate without it turning into a takeover? How do you improve performance and enrollment without contributing to gentrification? How do you stop a school from tipping? So your fundamental question is like, how do you change racial dynamics in this country? Because that is what what it is. White parents attract white parents, period. When I hear people say, you can't integrate New York City public schools because it's only 16% white, then I'm like, that's based on the assumption that you can never expect white parents to be a minority in a school. Because if that's not your assumption, then you can integrate the schools. Why can't you have a school that's 16% white? So how do you change the fundamental way that white people live and experience and expect race to work for them? And I can't answer that. That's something that white folks are going to have to deal with on their own. But the school system certainly can stop catering 
to those needs so much and can do things to ensure that schools don't tip. And namely, you're going to have to do set-asides. Set-asides, meaning a school can, with permission from the DOE, set aside, for example, 50% of seats for students living in poverty, no matter how many middle-class parents are trying to get in. We have a 70% low-income school districts. Low-income set-asides will work. And it's possible we've been exaggerating the risk of tipping, at least in the short term. Enrollment is inching up at Brighter Choice and a couple of other schools in District 16, but those are the exceptions. Most schools in the district are still on the decline. And Brighter Choice, PS309, even PS307 in Dumbo, which was rezoned four years ago now, they've all seen a similar phenomenon. Middle-class parents are coming, but they're not staying. They'll enroll for pre-K and kindergarten, and then they find someplace else to be. So all this concern about a school becoming so popular that it becomes overcrowded and contributes to rising property values, etc., etc., at this point, that might seem like a good problem to have. Dr. Lester Young began his teaching career 50 years ago at PS21 in District 16, under the leadership of Adelaide Sanford. He's been observing the shrinking district from his position on the New York State Board of Regents. You have to have a certain number of kids just because of the funding formula to be able to offer a, a, a program. And so it's going to reach a point where the, the number of students won't generate the resources to run a real school. And so then what's going to happen? And I think what's happening by default is that the, the district is going to disappear. Not to downplay the urgency of the enrollment issue, but it would take a lot for District 16 to actually disappear. Redistricting would inevitably be a highly politicized public process, and I think there's very little appetite for that among the higher-ups. And the stigma long associated with District 16 is starting to fade. For example, when the mayor and chancellor of schools held a town hall for parents across Brooklyn in January 2019, they held it at Boys and Girls High School in District 16. Here's what the chancellor, Richard Carranza, had to say. And while test scores aren't the only and sole determinant of how a school is doing, I will tell you last school year, District 16 in English Language Arts and Math had the highest percentage of gain of any district in the city. Thank you. Now, why is that important? Because when the conversation in the local bodega in the conversation in the local coffee house, in the conversation at the dinner party then happens about why shouldn't we send our kids to District 16 schools? Let's go find somewhere else. There is now a counter conversation that is happening that's saying, hey, watch out. Things are on the move in District 16. These schools are doing something great. Maybe you should take a look at what's happening in your local school. Okay, so I know it's part of the chancellor's job to blow smoke like that. But for a district that was basically written off by a lot of people for a long time, perception counts for a lot. CEC President Naquan McLean, for one, is optimistic. I'm excited. I'm excited to the next level that we're going. And I'm happy that District 16 is on the map. You know, we've held up Naquan as the avatar of parent power in District 16. And as a volunteer, he's probably done as much with his role as anyone possibly could. But not even Naquan is talking about ending mayoral control. And uh, this is an uncomfortable question, but we have to ask, who does he really represent? Up to now, the CECs have been elected only by the top three PTA officers at each school. Although with the next election in 2021, that's going to change. Thanks in part to Naquan's lobbying, all traditional public school parents will get to vote. But even then, half the students in District 16 school buildings are in charter schools, which are neither represented by nor accountable to the CEC. It's a far cry from the ideal of community democracy that they aspire to in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. 
Somehow the CEC feels like a metaphor for how inadequate all our institutions are to contend with the forward march of gentrification. Fabio McIntosh, former principal at Brighter Choice Community School. While the neighborhood is changing, there's a fire, there's a history in Bed-Stuy that is black that it was brought up on, you know, the struggle of black people. And I don't think we should lose that. Felicia Alexander, former president of the CEC. I would hope that the neighborhood would not be predominantly white. I would hope it would stay. Because right now, I think it's getting towards that 50-50 mix. And I'm hoping it doesn't shift to the point where we are the minority in our minority community. Bed-Stuy is still majority-minority, so to speak. But as of 2018, it's just 46% black, down from 75% in the year 2000. I have no problem with folks moving into the community. I think part of why gentrification is a bad word is that as new people move in, old people have to move out. And so if we want to have a community that is inclusive and respectful of one another, just making sure that if there is policy that's created in terms of housing, that there has to be something that's affordable around here because I don't even see, like, who's going to be able to afford Bed-Stuy 10 years from now? I think that every time minorities have something good, it gets taken away from us, and I'd like to be able to hold on to something like, I'm holding out hope that maybe in 2030 that we can still be Bed-Stuy, do or die. Not like out there shooting each other and literally dying, but just to have us still be here a part of the culture. The tensions between integration and self-determination, between individual interests and the collective, have always been here and always will be. Yet it does feel like we're at a unique moment in the life of Central Brooklyn, a tipping point of some kind or another. And it's discouraging that in many ways, we're still fighting each other for crumbs. So as we look towards the future, is there anything we can steal from the past? The vision of the community control experiment in Ocean Hill Brownsville was that schools could be a petri dish for racial and economic justice. It was deeply rooted in place, led primarily by black and brown central Brooklynites with a deep connection and commitment to their community and its culture. Parents were mobilized, activated, and powerful. They had a role in decision-making and policy, and schools got better. There were parents and teachers working together, and black and white people working together under black leadership. They all understood intuitively that their movement was not just about education, but housing and health and poverty. They were all intertwined then, and they still are. I don't know, Mark. We ask public schools to solve all the problems that we've created, to correct all the inequities baked into our society that we seem to be mostly unwilling to unbake by other means. You know, teaching is hard enough. When you have all these kids with different learning styles and needs and you don't have enough supplies and you have to deal with testing, I, I feel a little ridiculous for suggesting that schools should do even more than that. There's nothing ridiculous about it. Extraordinary things happen in schools every day. Brighter Choice has an after-school theater program. When I found out they were putting on The Lion King Jr., I had to be there. Once a theater kid, always a theater kid. 
You know, we've been talking to adults for three years and hearing from adults for eight episodes. But it's easy to forget that this is actually all about children. So as we wrap this up, we thought it only right that these kids provide the soundtrack. These are all children. We all live in the same neighborhood. At the end of the day, your children are going to play together. This isn't part of our culture. This is not part of American culture to work across difference. And so it's a huge stretch for anyone. If you are doing this work and you really mean it and you're not doing this just for you and just for your family, then you have to put the time in to learn how to do it because it's absolutely counterintuitive to everything we've ever been taught. It's counterintuitive to every single structure that's been established. A tremendous amount of resources and complexity went into creating this system, and we want the answers to be simple. They are not simple. We are, are trying to articulate something that doesn't even really exist yet. We have become a community of reacting to situations. And what we need to do is become a community of being proactive. People think that they can't make changes, especially people in the ghetto. They think they can't make changes, but you can. But you gotta be willing to fight for them. And that's what we did. It, it may feel like you're going against the tide. You're trying to hold back the tide, but we're not even trying. And I would much rather see us trying to do something about it than simply saying it's too hard or we can't do anything. is written and produced by Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman. Edited by Max Friedman and Elise Blennerhassett. Engineering, mixing, and sound design by Elise Blennerhassett. Production support from J.S. Sundaresh. Music by Avery R. Young and Deacon Board, Chris Zabriskie, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Harold Anderson, Alex Brunner, Jeremy Daniel, Lurie Favors, and of course, Faraji Hannah-Jones. Extra special thanks to Antonine Pierre for always holding it down at BMC. To the Joe Griffith Posse, for enduring my late nights and my time away. And to my parents, Gene Kaufman and Robert Friedman, without whom this would not have been possible for a hundred different reasons. School Colors is a production of Brooklyn Deep, the citizen journalism project of the Brooklyn Movement Center, a black-led community organizing group in Bed-Stuy. You can become a member or make a recurring donation at brooklynmovementcenter.org. School Colors is made possible by support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York and the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. Visit SchoolColorsPodcast.com for more information about this episode, including a full transcript. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at B-K-L-Y-N-D-E-E-P. Write to us at contact at brooklyndeep.org. Don't forget you can join us at the Brooklyn Public Library on Tuesday night, December 17th, for a conversation with Chalkbeat featuring special guest Naquan McLean. And just because this is the last episode, it doesn't mean School Colors is going to disappear. It's never too late to help spread the word by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, sharing on social media, or just telling a friend. Thank you to everyone who shared your stories with us. And thank you to everyone who listened. Peace.